0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We'll
1: go to seventeen. When Jesus arrived
0: four days, Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother.
1: As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming she was seated in the house. Then Martha said
0: to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again,
1: Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will stay. And
0: Jesus said to her, "I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live.
1: Everyone will never
0: die. Do you believe this?" "Yes, Lord," she told him. "I believe you are the Master." Of the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world.
1: All right, good morning, everyone. Hey, Christ is risen.
0: I'm the vicar at this church, and really good to be with you. If you haven't been around uh, the last six services, then let me just catch you up to speed with what we've been talking about. The last six services, we've been looking at the uh, seven I Am statements of Jesus in John's Gospel. So this is where Jesus takes a word that was very familiar to particularly Hebrew people, uh, people who uh, knew the Old Testament Scriptures, self as being God in human flesh. The word I am is the word in Hebrew Yahweh, which is the the name for God. And so uh, we've been talking a lot about just the fact that these statements of Jesus, to um, be self-identifications, right? They're, They're meant to show us, they're meant to be a clue to us, at least, that Jesus is, in fact, God in human flesh. And that's really John's big idea right throughout his gospel. He says at the very end in chapter 20, he tells us, the reason he has written this gospel is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. That's his whole purpose and throughout his book, he, he, he gives both signs, like tells us miracles that Jesus did that are signposts that point to a reality that he is God in human flesh, but also these I am statements serve the same purpose. And so we've talked a lot about how these statements reveal the supremacy of Jesus. He's not just a kind of cute hippie living in the ancient Near East telling people to love each other though he is kind of those things, but he's way more than that. He's not just a good teacher. He is God in human flesh. You've got to have those two things together. Otherwise, you miss the entire point of the gospel. And so um, something that I realized actually, though, just yesterday thinking about this is it's, we've, we've talked a lot about how these statements have another thing in common, and that is that all of them are designed to comfort us. Comfort and encourage us, which is a shame because some of these things have been taken by Christians and sort of weaponized as like some kind of um, like play to say, yeah, Jesus is God and your gods aren't gods and He is supreme and this is the truth. But actually, if you read them in context, all of them are designed to be comforting, to be encouraging. So even from the very beginning, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. A very strong statement that he is God in human flesh, right? Before someone who existed hundreds and hundreds of years before, he already existed and he takes that name, the name of Yahweh for himself. But the context in which um, God gives the self-declaration of I am Yahweh to Moses is in the context of wanting to comfort him. Moses is freaking out about having to just roll up to the greatest superpower on earth, to Pharaoh, and say, you know, you got to let all these slaves go. God told me so. And, and God tells him to say that Yahweh sent you as a, as a means of encouragement for him, comfort. And so the same is true in all of these sayings of Jesus. I am the bread of life. He's saying, what I can offer you is deep and abiding satisfaction to those in the world, which is all of us, who are desperately yearning. Those who come to me will never be hungry. They'll never be thirsty. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world, he says. Those who are walking in darkness, the the thing that you most want when you're muddling through life in the darkness is for some light to guide you, some light that you can move towards. Jesus is the light of the world. Those who believe in him will never walk in darkness. Same with being the The gate is the way into the sheep pen, into safety from the outside world where, as we learned, everything is always trying to eat sheep. Right through the gate you find safety and in, 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 the, in the midst of that safety you have a shepherd who's willing to lay down his life for you. It's tremendously comforting, encouraging. Same with him being the true vine, right? We we, we acknowledge that as branches on the vine, we are sometimes barren. We are sometimes fruitless. We're sometimes lacking in any kind of product, any kind of evidence of the life that's within us. But Jesus says, so long as you abide in me, remain in me, so long as you, the branch, are connected to this vine, then you will produce good fruit. When he shares with his disciples that he's the way, the truth, and the life, what does he say right before then? He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's comforting them. They realize he's going to die Good
1: Friday. The reassurance that the way to eternal life is in him. And the same is true of this passage today. And the words of encouragement here are for those who are grieving. I see Daryl here today. Um, At at
0: Pam's funeral, we 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 read this passage: words of comfort for those who are grieving. In the midst of the reality of death, Jesus gives words of life, of hope beyond the grave. This passage not only takes place at a funeral, we're going to look at the context in a second, but it reaches forward into the very midst of Easter Sunday, and that's where we're going to finish up. So let's jump in. Verse 17, I'd love you to look at this with me. It's in Bethany. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So context here is that Jesus' good friends, uh, Lazarus and Lazarus' sister Mary and his other sister Martha, uh, these are good family friends of his. And in fact, a little earlier in verse five, uh, I think it says, uh, yeah, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, that's Mary and Lazarus. So not just acquaintances, not just neighbors, but Loved ones. These are dear friends of Jesus whom he loves. And uh, the sad reality of the situation is that Lazarus has been sick. Word got to Jesus that he was very sick. And then by the time Jesus arrives with his friends in Bethany, Lazarus is dead. And he's been dead four days. That's an important detail in the story because in, in the first century, especially in this Hebrew culture, uh, you had to wait four days till you could be really sure that someone was dead. Isn't There's no machine that anyone's hooked up to with the little beepy thing to tell you for sure that someone is clinically dead. And so you wait four days. And the, the belief was that by the kind of third day, the, the spirit kind of leaves the body. And so on the fourth day, you can be sure. Counts, the early historical counts we have of this of, of people being buried and then kind of like bursting up out of the ground um, because they, in fact, weren't dead. Maybe they were just comatose or something like that. So they just wanted to be sure, right? They're very sure at this point. Lazarus has been dead four days later on. It will say that he kind of he stinks. Uh, he stinks like a dead person stinks, all right? So that's the situation. And the, the, the really interesting detail here is that Jesus has arrived four days late he's arrived four days late by design, he means to be late. Jesus has a design on this situation that goes beyond just merely arriving in time to save Lazarus' life. This, he says, is happening for the glory of God. It's going to be a demonstration of God's power and his glory. So. Let's see what happens. When Jesus rolls into town, first, first person he meets is Martha. This is verse 21 to 24.
1: Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had
0: been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. So here's a spoiler, right? And I'm, you know, like, even the most um, unchurched person knows the story of Lazarus, right? Lazarus has become like a, a euphemism in our culture for someone coming back from the dead. I mean, I was watching the footy with my sister last night and her beloved Sydney, I had announced to her with about four or five minutes to go, maybe five, six or seven minutes that they were home, that the game was over, that they were going to win. And then Port Adelaide, like Lazarus, come back from the dead and win the game, right? And we have that in our terminology. We know, so it's not too much of a spoiler, but here, here's the thing, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Right? He's going to call him out from the tomb, and Lazarus is going to live again. Jesus knows this. He already said this, right? He said back in verse 11, he said, um, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, he says to his disciples, but I'm on my way to wake him up, which is just a really badass line. Like, If you think about it, they've just heard, you know he knows that his friend has died, but he says to his buddies, yeah, he's fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. It's a cool line. Um, They don't get it. They think that they say something like, oh, well, if he's sleeping, that's good. He might get better. Um, Jesus was speaking euphemistically uh, about sleep as death, and uh, his waking him up is going to be his raising him from the dead. So that's what's going to happen, but obviously his disciples don't get it, Um, Martha doesn't get it. This is understandable. People don't generally be... They're not generally raised from the dead. Once you're dead and once you're stinking and once it's been four days, it's it's game over, right? So she doesn't get it exactly. She interprets what he's saying as this kind of general belief that Jews had in the first century. There were some who didn't go along with it, like the Sadducees, but the general Jewish belief was that at the last day when God would come uh, in his, through his Messiah and roll up history and do justice on the earth and uh, usher his faithful people into his presence, that at that time there would be a general resurrection and Everyone who has died will be raised again and live with God forever. That was the general Jewish expectation. So that's what she thinks he's talking about. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection, the last day, whenever that is. But Jesus isn't just talking about that general hope. Jesus is talking about very, something very specific. And so he drops... The last I am we're going to look at in this series, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. One of the most helpful books I ever read was this very, very easy-to-read book. I would put it in the hands of everyone in this room, if I could, and it's by an atheist philosopher, a French philosopher, called Luc Ferry. I guess it's Luc Ferry. and um, <laughs> He's an atheist philosopher, but his book is uh, A Brief History of Thought, and he, sort of, he, go, he works through... Um, you know, classical philosophy through the major religions of the world, and and in his mind, all of human uh, thought, religious and philosophical, all of it is designed to deal with the reality of death. He says that is the thing that unites, you know, like cave paintings thousands of years ago to, you know, string theory today, like all, all of these different ways of thinking about the universe, all of them are driven by this sense we have that death is coming for us. There is an inevitability about this. I don't know if you've checked in with this for a little while. None of us do this very often. But you are going to die. It's coming soon. And you can't do anything to stop it. It's inevitable. And he says this recognition that death is inevitable and that it's, Anxiety producing, um, that it's a problem, like the greatest problem that we have, drives all human thought. And so, as an atheist, he can just see that you know, all of these attempts, religious or otherwise, are attempts at solving the same problem. But he does say that no system of thought has better solved it than the Christian faith. He says that's, in his mind, why it's been so successful as a unified system of
1: thought. Jesus here
0: provides the solution to the problem of death, but it's not just a system of thought. It's not a philosophy. The promise he gives is a person. You really need to get this. If you want to understand what Christianity is all about, it's not just a religious system. It's not just a a system of philosophy or a way of understanding the world or a worldview or or even just a tradition. The, The promise is a person. The solution to the problem of death is a person. That's why he says, I am the resurrection and the
1: life. I am. It's
0: me. It's a person. And even it goes beyond that because the, the word he uses here is, is a little bit weird and, and we don't get it translated in the Bible because it would just look like a grammatical error. But he says, the one who believes, not the one who believes in me, he says the one who believes into me, a very specific Greek word in the original text, the one who believes into me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes into me will never die. It's not just some sort of theoretical thing that you can say, yes, I I can accept this on its own terms. It feels like a coherent system of thought. There's some logic in it. Like it's not just that, though, that has all of those things. But it's something that you need to believe into. It's something you need to put yourself in. The Bible, I think, maybe only once or twice refers to followers of Jesus as Christians, and it's used as a pejorative term. That's what the, the people were saying of Christians who hated Christians, like little Christs. It was a put-down. What the Bible says, that the terminology it uses for Christians is those who are in Christ. Christians are those who are in Christ, not just not just following him and not just even celebrating what he's done like we're doing this morning, not just marking his life as something important and not just participating in rituals like we will this morning, but they are living in something. They are in Christ. They have put themselves into the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. This obviously has huge implications for how we live as Christians. You can't just go around saying, I'm a Christian in the same way that I say I'm a follower of the Essendon Football Club. I can't name a player who plays for them. I'm, that's not, I'm, not, I'm not a follower of the Essendon Football Club, right? I just have a sort of affinity for them. When I was a kid, I really followed them. I used to go to every game. I used to go out to Windy Hill and freeze to death cheering on the Mighty Bombers. Now I have no affinity to it. That's how some of us conceive of our Christian faith. Well, yeah, I follow Jesus in the same way that he follows Essendon, but that's not what a Christian is. Someone who is a Christian is someone who believes into Christ, and that means everything they do, life and breath and being every day, All of life, all about Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's just like the base level follower of Jesus. Living resurrection
1: life. So
0: that's Martha's response, and she gets it. It clicks. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Let's keep going and see how her sister responds. We're going to meet Mary in verse 32. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same response, exactly the same. She says exactly the same thing as her sister does. We find through the gospel accounts that these two women are very, um, very different. You, you, you know, with your own kids, you can have the very same kids, same genetic material, same upbringing, but they're very different, wired very differently. So it is with these women. It seems like Martha is is the steady one. She's the logical one. She's kind of meeting Jesus at the sort of theological level. Mary, she's a she's a feeler. She's a she's a big crier. Um. She, um, while Martha is busy doing stuff, preparing for a meal, she's just sitting at Jesus' feet, right? Later on, she anoints Jesus with all this really expensive perfume and like rubs her hair into his feet. Right? She's, a, she's, a, she's an emotive person. And even here, when she uses the same wording exactly as her sister, the difference is that she's falling at his feet, She fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the translators give her an exclamation mark. I just think I want to just, just stop here, pause on that image of her throwing himself at his feet and saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would still be here too. And just acknowledge like, the real pain and disappointment with God that we can feel when someone we love dies.
1: Don't ever let a well-meaning
0: brother or sister in this church tell you, "Oh, don't, don't be upset. You know, it'll all be okay in the end. Jesus is the resurrection, the life. It's not authentic Christianity. Authentic faith looks at Jesus and says, if you had have done something, they would still be here. It's actually a great expression of faith. This expression of disappointment and pain comes from a place within both women where they know if he was here, he could have done something. It's the same expression of faith that any of us have when we witness the death of a loved one and we cry out to God, why didn't you do something?
1: I hear that in verse 32. I hear that in her voice. I I see that in her throwing herself on the ground. This didn't have to happen.
0: One of the most profound books I have ever, ever read is A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. And he wrote it after his wife, Joy Davidman, died of cancer. He, he, he actually wrote it under a pseudonym, um, N.W. Clerk, was how it was published. It was just four notebooks that he kept after his wife died and just dealing with the grief, the pain of... Um, yeah, losing his wife. He'd, he'd only been married a very short time. And he was grappling with this as a believer in Jesus, as someone who had um, shaped Western Christianity with his writings. Uh, he's now dealing with the reality of death and just um, pouring out his heart in these, in these papers. And uh, eventually they get republished under his real name, C.S. Lewis. The story goes that so many of his friends were giving him the book to try and like, encourage him in his grief that he was just like, all right, I admit it, I wrote that. But actually, when it was published under his name, there were a lot of people who were very disappointed. They felt kind of betrayed by him because he was this great man of faith who had written books like Mere Christianity and like these, these profound writings about faith and just seemed like such a strong believer. And then in these pages, he's dealing with the reality of death and he's quite angry with God at times. People felt let down by him, but I actually think again, like, like Martha, like Mary, it's an expression of deep faith in God. The level to which you're disappointed with him is kind of the level to which you expect him to do something in these situations. Let me read just a little bit for you from it. It's, It's kind of stark. It says, he says, and he's just pouring out his heart here. He says, when you are happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, needing God, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms, but go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside and after that, silence. That was his experience of God as he watched his wife die. He would
1: pray for her to be healed and all he got was silence.
0: This time of year kind of sucks for me. Always does. In four days, it'll be 34 years since my mum died, April 13th. And thinking about it earlier this week, it's probably as long as most people ever have in their life without their mum. You know, if she dies and she dies
1: 30-odd years later. And um, to be honest with you, Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not okay with it. Oh, yeah, there I am with mum. It's her birthday, 3rd of December.
0: So I feel like I had this really, I, I like that, that's just a still from a VHS. My dad used to carry around this enormous video camera wherever it was a an event. And I feel like that, so that image is, is kind of how I feel to this day. I feel like I had this kind of special connection with my mum, which was just severed, completely severed. And I'm not okay. I haven't made peace with it. It's been 34 damn years. and I haven't made peace with it. I'll read you just a little bit of a piece that I wrote for um, this online thing. It's called uh, Mother's Day for the Motherless. I read it a of, wrote it a couple of years ago. This gives you an idea of how I feel. I say like Christians offer explanations. God didn't want your mum to die, didn't he? And we're on the same page, him and me. The difference, the difference is I couldn't do anything about it. I was eight. He was infinity. God does whatever he wants. They told me that every week at Sunday school. This is all wrong. He never should have died. And I'll never get over it. I went to one funeral where the guy at the front in the dog collar said, we're not here to mourn death but to celebrate life. I should have raised my voice in opposition or called down holy fire. Don't speak for me, matey. I'm not here to celebrate. I'm here to protest. This dying has got to stop. It's outrageous. Death is wrong. I refuse to make peace with it. The rantings
1: of an eight-year-old grief-stricken kid. I accept that, but I do think I've got Jesus with me on this. I do think this is how Jesus feels about death. I think he's a little bit unbalanced,
0: just like I am. I don't think he's stoic. I don't think he's a stiff upper lip kind of guy when it comes to death. Let me tell you why. Let's read verse 33 to 35. When Jesus saw her crying, that's Mary, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept.
1: deeply moved in his
0: spirit and troubled. That's like the polite christian ease translation of he was angry, like really angry, really upset, unsettled,
1: troubled.
0: Like Jesus in the temple courts cracking a whip and throwing over tables, that kind of thing. And this is all the while knowing that he's going to raise this dude from the dead. He knows the happy ending's coming. And yet, confronted with the reality of death itself, he responds both with anger, deep
1: tension within himself, and with tears. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? This is very puzzling. Why does Jesus weep? Say again.
0: He's human as well as God. Yes, he experiences real emotions. When you're crying in the
1: NICU because your baby's been stillborn, Jesus knows how that feels.
0: Jesus is also the creator of all things. We've seen that in this series. He's the great I Am. He was there at the beginning when he created the world to function in flourishing harmony, like never-ending, beautiful, throbbing life without any death or disease or devils. And so he sees death as a corruption of his intention he sees it as a vandalism on his creation and he weeps and he's deeply moved
1: and he's troubled so should we be
0: again please like the well-meaning christians who tell you i oh, don't you know put on a happy face you can accept that from them without punching them, but you might want to punch them because that kind of substanceless, trite, Christian frosting is not going to help you when you've just seen a loved one die. You who are mel- meaning well in trying to, you know, put a happy face on a bad situation, just know that this is not the ministry God has for you at this time. He wants you to weep. Weep with those who weep. Mourn
1: with those who mourn.
0: Death is wrong. An aberration. And God feels it more than we do. Jesus here. Is feeling more pain than Martha and Mary are. This is captured really beautifully in another one of uh, C.S. Lewis's works. This is in his his uh, Chronicles of Narnia, which ostensibly are written for kids, but every adult has to read them. They're so good. And in the book, The Magician's Nephew, which is the, the first uh, book in the series, tells of the creation of the world and tells of this boy named Diggory. Diggory uh, is suffering because his mum is sick and dying. She's going to die. And C.S. Lewis is writing himself into this story because he himself, as a 10-year-old, lost his mum. He died. So, sort of autobiographical in that sense. He knows what it's like to be a little boy who's been told that your mum's not going to live. So, anyway, in the story, Diggory has found himself in this magical world called Narnia. He's just seen the creation of it as the lion Aslan, representative of Jesus in that world, sings creation into being, sings this world of Narnia into being. And so he comes face to face with this lion, this creator God, and this is what he says, he says to Aslan, please, please won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them, now in his despair he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great, shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son. At Aslan, I know
1: grief is great.
0: Jesus feels the grief of the death of Lazarus more than anyone else feels it. And so he weeps. He weeps even as he prepares to demonstrate his power over death in raising Lazarus the dead let's look at that verse 43 and 44 after he said this he shouted with a loud voice Lazarus come out the dead man huh, the dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth Jesus said to them unwrap him and
1: let him go absolute demonstration of limitless power God in human flesh. I am that I am. Nothing is beyond
0: his power. The women were right when they said, if you appear, he would not have died. And he proves it by raising him, Lazarus, from the dead. Now, this is a sign, pretty incredible sign, an amazing sign, But it's a sign that points to something greater than itself. Raising Lazarus from the dead is amazing, but it's not the biggest thing in this gospel. It's not the most important thing. It's not the most powerful thing. It's not the most important thing. Lazarus was raised from the dead. I mean, it's time to party and celebrate, but the day is coming when Lazarus is going to be back in the tomb.
1: He's been healed from death only to die again. So it's
0: amazing, it's incredible, it's beautiful, it's powerful. But it's not everything. It's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. It's just a sign. It's a signpost that is pointing to something infinitely more powerful. I'm going to finish with that. Let's turn over to John chapter twenty. And I'll read you what this sign is pointing us to. John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. That's Jesus' tomb. He's dead. He's buried. She came there early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Pause there for a second. That's funny because John is that disciple and he's just written in his own book that he was faster than Peter. And I just think that was, that's hilarious. Just for all time, people will know he was faster. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. (laughs) And just in case you missed it, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first <laughs> then also went in, saw, and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at his head, the other at his feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because I've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary.
1: Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means, "teacher." That's
0: what Lazarus' resurrection is pointing us to. Lazarus was raised, and it was a beautiful, powerful, magnificent thing, but he was raised to die again. Jesus' resurrection was for all time. He will never taste death again. And because he is the resurrection and the life, those who believe into him will never die. Jesus' own resurrection is proof positive that we ourselves will be raised because those who are in Christ will follow him into death and then beyond it into resurrection life. He is the forerunner. He is the firstborn from the dead. He has tasted the first fruits of the resurrection. Everything that has happened to him will happen to us through death into life and inheriting all that he inherits as the Son of
1: God. This is an amazing
0: truth. You might have heard it a thousand times, 10,000 times. This might be your 80th Easter Sunday service of your life. Don't miss how stunning this truth is.
1: It is the answer to all of our fears,
0: the inevitability of death. Because Jesus died and was raised again, so shall we be. All you need to do is believe into him.
1: Do you believe it? Praise the Lord.
0: i are going to pray for us now. We're going to sit and just listen to uh, him being played for us. And I'd love you to consider a couple of things. Either whether in fact you are believing into him or whether perhaps you might have started following him like I follow Essendon. This is then is your opportunity to recommit yourself to him.
1: If I turn up to uh,
0: the next Essendon game and show them my membership from 1989, it's not going to get me anywhere it's tempting to think sometimes for those of us who have wandered away from Jesus that our membership has expired, but the beautiful truth of the gospel is that everyone is always welcome. Everyone is always welcome to put their trust into him. You can do that this morning. If you'd like to do that, then please stick around after the service and just pray with us. We'd love to pray you with you into Jesus. Perhaps you're here and this is all just good news. Like This is just yes and amen. I've been talking for about 20 minutes too long already and you're just the whole way through. You're just just vibing on everything I'm saying and praise God for that. But you know as well as I do that these opportunities, opportunities like today, Resurrection Sunday, are opportunities for us to reaffirm all that we believe to recommit ourselves to following him day to day, to reestablish the gospel in all of life, all of life, all about Jesus. Please do that during this time, just between you and God, between you and the risen Jesus, please reaffirm your trust in him. Let me pray for us as our musos come up. Father, thank you for your word to us. I thank you that all through this series, through John's gospel, you've been really reminding us of the supremacy of Jesus and also of your deep care and concern for us. You are a God who sympathizes, who empathizes, who weeps with us. Thank you, Lord. I pray now that this time we have in the next few minutes would be time that we don't waste. Lord, save us from wandering minds and other concerns, please help us to focus in on the goodness of the gospel and your invitation to all people here to believe
1: into you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: So, oh, the throne, the grave. The cross has overthrown the throne. by the